Let's pray. Lord, you, you know us even better than we know ourselves. And God, you know the desires of our hearts and the things that we, we seek after and the things that we pursue. But Lord, you also know what we truly need. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Oh God, as we have said, even those, as we share the gospel with those around us, we know that if your spirit does not work in their hearts, to give them ears to hear the words that we speak just fall to the ground. And Lord, in the same way, even those of us who are your children need your spirit to quicken our minds and our hearts and our wills to receive your word. Oh God, may you give us hearts of fertile soil to receive the word that you are about to give to us. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. So I was reading uh, Job and I came across this verse. Man that is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. Now I thought that's a good description of life. You know that... Our days are few on this earth, at least if you compare that to eternity, they're few on the earth. And they're also full of trouble. And, and being full of trouble, I think then, humanly speaking, it's just natural for us as human beings to desire rest from that kind of trouble that we experience here upon this earth. And so we live our lives sort of trying to, to fulfill this longing of our hearts for the sense of rest. And I would suggest to you, while I think we don't oftentimes consciously think this, that every to-do list that we fill out, that every uh, uh, thing that we schedule, every activity that we plan, everything that we do probably is seeking after this sense of longing for that sense of rest from the troubles of life. And we live in a world that's almost like a carnival. Kids, have you ever gone to the state fair and you walked in the midway? And especially if you've gone there at night, which your, kid, your parents may not let you do that because it can be sort of a rough place at night. But, you know, there's all the lights that are going and, and the people are out there saying, hey, come, come play this game or here. Don't you want to buy this cotton candy or there's just all these voices that are coming at you. And in much the same way, that's how it is with the world, that with this longings of our hearts that we have, that the world is seeking to call us to itself to have those desires fulfilled. And I think just even as I think about humanity and, and the common desires that we have is that we seek to understand the world in which we live. We want to know the truth of who we are and how everything in our life fits together. There's a sense in which it's a, a natural desire of our hearts to achieve something worthwhile in this life to have some sense of purpose it's not enough just to do things but we want there to be some purpose we want to have the power to make a difference in the world in which we live there's also a, a part of us that desires to belong to have that sense to understand that we are special to, to someone else and I think also we have a desire for that for peace a, a, a peace from all the turmoil in this life a peace in our relationships with others, really a peace in every aspect of our lives. And like I said, the world is, is calling us to itself to, to listen and to, to try to fulfill these desires with the things that the world has to offer. And there are those in this world that I think believe that they have found the satisfaction for those things in their life. 
by the things of the world, but unfortunately they're, they're not going to find until death sort of plunges them into eternity that those things were just counterfeit solutions to the desires of their hearts. Well, that's not only true today, but that was true in the day of Isaiah the prophet as well. People were looking for that sense of purpose and significance and meaning and truth and peace. But what's so sad is that even God's people were, were, do, were doing that as well. And they were really looking in the same place that the world was looking for solutions. You know, God had redeemed a people for himself. He had created the Jewish nation and he had gave, given them everything that they needed. But they had rejected God in many ways and looking to the idols of the nations around them to find that sense of acceptance and find that sense of purpose. It's a lot like what happened in creation. God creates Adam and Eve and God doesn't just give Adam and Eve everything they needed to get by. Actually, the Garden of Eden was so awesome and wonderful that God had given his Adam and Eve everything that they needed to enjoy life to delight in the Lord and to appreciate all that he had given. And yet they rebelled against him and they had sinned against him. And I was just thinking about that this week. Isn't that sad that God gives and gives and gives his people so much and yet their hearts are so often prone to wander away from him. Well, in Isaiah's day, we read that the people of God in, this, in the same way were immersed in spiritual darkness, much like the world around them. I mean, uh, you know, we looked at Ahaz last week and, and how he was the king of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria were coming against Ahaz. And so God, knowing that Ahaz was a wicked king, sent the prophet Isaiah to him I just can't believe this. Ahaz, you know, does not follow the Lord. And yet God continues to show his grace to this king and sends a prophet to send the word of the Lord to him to say, stand firm. Do not worry. I will cause you to stand. But turn to me and trust me. But Isaiah would not would not hear that. He would not listen to Isaiah. He continued in his wickedness and he turned to Assyria instead to try to be his deliverance. Well, I'm, in the end, Assyria was his, his undoing. But, you know, there's that sense in which God's people were living in sin, which was leading them to bondage, um, which was a very unfortunate thing. So the people who were to be the light to the nations, the Jews, were in practice living in wickedness. So there's a spiritual and a moral darkness that we see in Isaiah's time. And we don't have the time to read that, but go back and read Isaiah 8. This week, and, and you'll see more and more of that. Well, unfortunately, not unlike that in our times as well, the church seems to be uh, appear to be more and more irrelevant to the culture. You know, the church has lost its voice in one sense, and as uh, as it is oftentimes the trend, many in the younger generation they do not see the church as having anything worth saying to them. And this is true not only in our country, but even. In other parts of the world as well, even parts of the world where the Reformation was strong and people died for the gospel of Jesus Christ that it might go forth. There are now places where churches are being used as coffee shops. And I know when Robbie and I were in England, we even saw one church that had been turned over into a place where they promoted witches and uh, black magic and places like that. It's a, it's a very sad thing. Well, Isaiah, 
in Isaiah's time, the people of God were seen as irrelevant as well. They had just sort of made themselves like the world. And we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness. Now, that word walk there means to live. You know, they lived in darkness, but it also can mean sit. And, and as I was thinking about that, I thought it sort of reminds you of Psalm 1, verse 1, where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Or maybe another way of restating that verse is to say this, Cursed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who stands in the way of sinners, and who sits in the seat of scoffers. And that's where God's people were in Isaiah's time. God's people were settling in and they were becoming like the world. Um, yesterday at our men's gathering, we were talking about a lot of different things, but this was one of the things that, that came up and one of the men made a, a, a really insightful statement. You know, they said, it's interesting that we don't talk about worldliness in the church very much anymore. You know, maybe in some fundamental churches, maybe they talk about worldliness, but in the church, we don't talk about that so much. And, you know, and yet... I think oftentimes churches struggle with loving the world more than they ought. Even though God says in his word in John, 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Or as James says in James chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? With God. Kids, do you remember that word enmity? We talked about that in Genesis 3 15. Enmity. That's a big, it's not a big word, but it's a fancy word that means hostility. You know, that to have friendship with the world is to be hostile with God, to be angry with God, to have sort of like a battle between you and God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or, or even Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so we, we see sort of this grim picture of God's people, both in Israel's time, but I would suggest that even in our time, humanity is no different. We still struggle with those things. We oftentimes find ourselves, even in the church, uh, maybe looking a little bit more like the world than what we uh, desire to look like. But brothers and sisters, I'm not here so much to beat up on the church this morning. I want us to see that even though that is oftentimes the picture of God's people, I want us today to really look at God's response to his people. And, and we see that in the second half of verse 2. We read that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Or even go back to verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, these were the two most northern tribes of of those uh, tribes that split off from the nation of Judah. Okay, so this is the northern tribe that sort of attached itself with Assyria to come against the southern kingdom. And what he's saying is, is 
in the former time, these, these nations were brought into contempt. In other words, Assyria is going to come and he's going to wipe out the nation of Israel. He's going to take them into captivity and, and there's going to be that sense of contempt. But he goes on and he says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so he, Isaiah is announcing in the midst of this gloom and darkness that, that he's speaking about that Jesus Christ, as we read in Matthew chapter 4, that Jesus Christ will come to that region of Galilee, right? He'll, be, he'll come from that region and he'll come preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to repent and turn to the Lord. And so we see the salvation of God coming to a nation that has been wicked and has turned against him. And, and what we see here is, is, as we read in John 8, 12, that Jesus is the light of the world and he penetrates the darkness and brings to us everything that we could possibly need for our salvation. And, and I want us to see that this morning as we look at these four names that he uses for, for Christ. He talks of him as being the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the everlasting father and the prince of peace. That he is a great savior and, and he is all of the things, all of the time that God's people need. And this is the vision that God wants us to see through Isaiah. So what Isaiah is seeking to do is to take this nation that, that is worldly, to take God's people that have aligned themselves too much with the world and the thinking of the world. And he wants to reorient their hopes just like he wants to reorient our hopes today. He wants us to trust him and not our own wisdom and efforts to attain those things that we are seeking after in our lives. As we have those secret longings and those desires of our hearts that we not turn and trust in ourselves, that we not listen to the voices, the carnival voices of the world around us, but that we turn our hope and we look at our Savior. And, and notice here that, that, that the, the tone of Isaiah's message really turns from that sense of sadness and despair to utter joy. Um, look at verse 3. He says, You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with uh, joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoils. He's saying they are as happy as someone who has taken the time to plant this, this field and now they harvest it and they see the fruit of their hands and they're, they're feeling good. Yes, I got a good crop. This is really great. Or someone who's gone to battle and they've won the war and now they have the spoils of war and they're looking around and they're feeling that sense of satisfaction. That's how God's people are. Now, it's what I want you to see, though, is that Isaiah speaks this to a people that that was not their existence. If they looked around themselves, they were in darkness. But it's interesting that if you look at the verbs, and I don't want to get too technical here, but if you look at the verbs in, in this tense, Isaiah's prophecy is written in the past tense, even though it's a promise about something that's going to happen in the future. And the reason why he does that is because he wants us to show that God's promises are so sure that it's like as if they're already done, even before they're fulfilled. And he wants us to know that we can be a people of hope because our God is, is so certain. So God has not forgotten his people. As a matter of fact, the nation that is uh, currently under spiritual darkness is shown that while that darkness is very true, 
It's not the whole truth and certainly not the fundamental truth, but instead that we as a people have a hope. And we must keep this in mind uh, as we live our lives as well, because we're sort of a people who are in the already and the not yet. You know, we have experienced the fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about in the sense that Christ has come and he has died on the cross. But even in that, we have not received the fullness of our salvation. And I think the church has forgotten that. The church has too much tried to make this world their eternal home and tried to create happiness here upon this earth instead of looking forward to the promises that we will have in heaven and know that while we have already begun, you know, that the the age of Christ has happened, that we are beginning to experience salvation, that we have a brotherly and sisterly love in Christ, that we are seeing our sins, we are dying more and more to our sins, and we're living more and more into righteousness, and that is happening now. We will never accomplish that here upon this earth. So there's a sense in which we ought to rejoice and praise God for what He's doing in our lives, and yet there ought to always be a sense of yearning for eternity and the fulfillment of the things that Isaiah talks about. Amen? So, we, you know, we, I think sometimes we can get confused because we look for uh, the, that fulfillment of those things here upon this earth. And, and how we think about eternity and, and the promises that God has given us uh, will affect how we live our lives today. In other words, we need to live our lives in light of eternity. You know, we need to understand that even though we still are in the midst of the darkness and the darkness of this world, that God's promises are just as true for us today as they were for Isaiah. The hope of what is to come informs how we are to view our lives now. And so we need to remember that as we think about our existence. So what is this joy that, that he talks about? Well, or excuse me, what is the cause of this joy that he talks about? Well, you can look at verses four through six and actually every one of those verses, verses four, verses five, verses six, all start with the word for, at least in the English standard version. Uh, that word for can mean because for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as of the day of Midian or because the the yoke of his burden or in verse five for every boot or because every boot of the trampling warrior, so on and so forth. Or verse 6, for or because to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And we see the ultimate reason for our joy being that in verse 6, for to us a child is born. But who is this child? And I want to suggest to you, just very briefly, I just want to look at these four titles that this child has, that the Messiah, the Redeemer has, and how that perfectly lays over our lives and the things that we long for and the things that we desire. First of all, Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Um, he is our guide to those who are in darkness. If only they will come to him and to trust him. You know, it sort of is reflective of Psalm 23 and verse 4 where it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In our spiritual and moral darkness, we must not lean on our own coping mechanisms that we use in life to get through our days, but we must lean upon Jesus Christ. We must look to him and, 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 and desire him. You know, you know what I mean by coping mechanisms? 
You know, we have these little things that we use in life to sort of get through circumstances. It might be that we might be very lonely on the inside. You might be sitting here in church and you know all these people and you know that they know you. But there's still a sense in which even though you're in a room full of people, you feel that sense of loneliness. But to cope with that sense of loneliness, rather than admitting it, you pretend like everything's okay. Or, or maybe you find yourself disturbed and you're very troubled in your heart. And after church, somebody comes up to you and says, well, how are you doing today? And what do we say as Christians? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, my wife and I refer to this as the Christian fine. OK. And usually what it means is I am frenzied, insecure, neurotic and exhausted. OK. That's what a Christian fine usually means. And so, you know, we I'll just tell you this. If anybody says you're fine, you need to probe a little bit more. OK. Dig in a little bit more and say, really? Well, tell me about that. You know, we really need to love each other enough to not let us use our coping mechanisms. Or maybe we are really struggling to have real relationships in which we are encouraged by others. And so what we do is we keep ourselves at arm's length from those around us. Maybe we let them get into our life just a little bit, but not too far because we don't want them to really know us. And I think we oftentimes do this with God as well, that we may act as if we don't need a savior where the reality is, is that we need a savior every day of our lives. You know, we need Jesus, the wonderful counselor, to guide us, and we need to trust him and not to rely upon our coping mechanisms. You know, that's why Paul describes Christ in Colossians 2, verse 3. Paul describes Jesus as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our God has created everything. He has redeemed us. He knows us. And we pretend that we've gotten everything all worked out in our lives and, you know, that we can, you know, we can make it. But Jesus calls us to trust him. He is our wonderful counselor. He will guide and he will lead us. But second, Isaiah says that he is the God who possesses the power that we need as well. The wisdom that we lack, but also the power that we need. He is the mighty God. Now, that word that he uses there for mighty means heroic or it's uh, the idea of a champion. So he is the God who does things in a, in a very heroic fashion. And, and if you look at verse 4, you can see sort of the description of the kind of God he is. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now kids, what's the day of Midian? Well, I don't know. You know what? I could probably ask the adults the same thing and they may go, I don't know. But the day of Midian really is referring to the days of Gideon. You remember that when Gideon was facing the, the Midian army, it was a very powerful foe. And so Gideon was very thankful that he had 20,000 soldiers uh, to face the enemy, even though that was a little small to face such a big enemy. But God saw it very differently. And God says, you have too many men. And so he said, what I want you to do, Gideon, is, is I want you to send home all the men who are frightened. So about half the guys left. So now he's down to 10,000 men. Still, God says that's too many. And so God goes through this process of eliminating these men until he gets Gideon down to 300 men. You know, 
And, uh, you know, already 20,000 didn't seem like any too many. And now 300 seems like just ridiculous. And as if that's not bad enough to go against this mighty Midian army, then God says that the weapons I'm going to give you to fight this army are clay pots with lights inside them. You know, oh, wow, joy, joy, you know, no weapons, no knives, no anything, just pots with lights inside of them. And so they broke the pots and they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And what happened? It put the Midian army to flight. They left. They took off, kids. They were just terrified. And the point that we see is, is that our mighty God demonstrates his power to save his people through weakness and frailty. You know, he doesn't demonstrate his power in our competency, but he does so in our weakness and our vulnerability. And I think, isn't that so interesting? As people, what do we do? We spend so much effort, we spend so much time trying to appear competent to everybody else, and yet our God works best through frailty and weakness. And so, in essence, we are fighting against God Rather than saying, Lord, let me be weak, that you might be strong through me. I mean, that's what Paul says. In my weakness, he is strong. And so, what does he say? To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Now, I'll tell you what, folks. You cannot get much weaker than a baby. You know, there's not a lot of strength there. There's, there's not a lot there to work with, you know. But that's how God works, through a baby, and this is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul rejoiced in the gospel. He said the Greeks are always looking for wisdom and intellectual understanding. In other words, you know, they're not, they're saying explain it to me and if I can understand it, then I'll believe it. Which, you know, is just ridiculous. You know, do we think that we are God and that we can understand what God understands? But the Jews were no better. They wanted a sign and they, they wanted works of power. Unfortunately, because mighty God works by weakness and frailty, a savior that dies on the cross, the, the Jews miss God's great work of saving power. Or many of the Jews did, worked, uh, missed his work of saving power. But brothers and sisters, how often do we miss God's saving work in our lives because we are unwilling to be weak and out of control? And as much as we might fight God for control, praise God he doesn't always let us win. Praise God there are many times when we come to the end of ourselves in the day and we might get to the end of the day and we think, this was an awful day. Well, the only reason it was an awful day is because as God was graciously taking the reins and control of our lives away from us, we continued to fight him to the end. What, rather than resting in him and saying, okay, Lord, you showed me I can't do this. I'm turning to you. I'm going to rest in you. He is a mighty God. But he is also the everlasting Father. Not only is Jesus a counselor whose wisdom we need and the God whose power we need, but he is the Father whose love we need as well. What Isaiah is saying is, is that our need is to be adopted, to have that sense of belonging. You know, it's interesting that the Bible begins by telling us that humanity is made in the image of God. We are made to know God as our Father. Unfortunately, though, we don't know Him this way because we are oftentimes, as humanity, prodigal sons and daughters in a foreign land who are trying to forget about God and live our lives the way that we want to live it. 
And what humanity is actually trying to do is to squeeze that last memory of God's fatherly pursuit out of their minds because by nature they despise God and they want any, any reflection of who God is in them out of them. And so, as Romans 1 says, is that humanity suppresses the truth of who God is, even though you can look out in nature and you can see that God's, who God is in his handiwork. You know, sometimes, though, even those who speak about God's goodness and love exhibit lives that show that they actually think the same way about God, that they think ill about God. You know, have you ever walked in the mall or or just anywhere, and you see a father and a teenage son, maybe he's 14, 15 years old, I don't know, 16, and uh, he's walking with his dad, and the dad's walking ahead, and the son's like lagging way behind. He's walking way behind his dad. And the reason why he's walking behind his dad is because he doesn't want his friends to see that he's with his dad. You know, he doesn't want them to do, he doesn't want to do that. He wants to appear cool, not like he's independent. You know, brothers and sisters, I think sometimes we are that teenage son. You know, that we are ashamed of our Heavenly Father. That we don't know who we are. There, there is an alienation oftentimes in our hearts towards Him. We don't really love Him. And we don't really feel loved by our Heavenly Father. Yes, you know, we may say that He is a loving Heavenly Father. But as far as our hearts are concerned... It's not true, you know, and then so then our disposition may be more like that of an orphan where we feel very alone and we feel like we have to be the only one to look out for ourselves because nobody else does. And for some, we have actually never felt loved by God. How about you? Have you understood? Have you experienced his love as the everlasting father Jesus wants you to know that you belong, that you are part of his family, that you have a place, and that you are truly, truly, truly loved. And then finally, we see that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Now the word peace there is that word shalom. It means to have peace in every aspect of your life, to have peace with God, to have peace with other people, with all of humanity, with the world in which you live, peace within ourselves. Can you imagine that? Could could you imagine having that kind of peace? I think we live in such a restless age that that kind of idea to have peace in all of our lives just, just seems beyond our comprehension. I mean, we've always had wars. We've even had wars that supposedly were going to end all wars, but it didn't work. We, we just had more wars. I mean, even, even our, our economic culture that we live in and consumerism has taken a toll on our society. You know, it's, it's difficult to be content and satisfied with uh, a, a culture in which we're constantly being bombarded with the message of more, better, newer. Get the improved version. You know, yes, I know your cell phone's only two months old, but you need the new one that just came out. Those are the things that we hear. And so there's just a constant sense of dissatisfaction and lack of peace in our hearts. And that's because we can never have peace until we have peace with God. But praise God, Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And if we read on from chapter 9 to Isaiah 53... 
then we would come across these words that point to Jesus Christ. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So there is one this morning who can raise his hands and he can say, peace be to your soul. And we will believe him because we see his nail-pierced hands. And we know that he is the one that is called Prince of Peace, the one who went into the dark valley of Calvary, the place where there was no peace. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death. To the point where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that. He walked through that valley so that you and I might have peace. And so, as we come to this passage this morning and and our hearts ache to understand the world in which we live, And we want to know, we want to understand this world that God has created us. I want you to know that we have a Savior who is our wonderful counselor, who who will guide us and direct us. That as we seek to achieve things that are worthwhile in this life and we need strength, that he is our mighty God. That as we desire to belong, to be special to someone, that he is the everlasting Father who adopts us. As we seek to experience peace in our life, that he truly is the Prince of Peace who died, that we might know true peace. Let us remember that Jesus Christ is wisdom for us in this world of darkness. He is power to deliver us from our bondage. He is love to bring us into God's family and peace to remove all of our guilt. And while we will not experience these things quite as we will in eternity, Still, God gives us a foretaste of that even now. Amen? And he calls us to enjoy the gift that he has given to us. But let us not be like the little kids. You know, I mean, what what do kids like Virginia do, you know, on Christmas morning? You know, you give them this beautiful package. You know, you're so excited about this gift that you give to them. And they start unwrapping it. And, you know, they, they, you help them get the box open and you pull the gift out. and You're like, look, well, we got you. And what are they doing? They're over here playing with the wrapping in the box. And you're thinking, yeah, but here's the gift. But how often do we do that with our Savior? You know, that he gives us everything and he's like, here's the gift. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, you know, everlasting father, prince of peace. And we're over here playing with the wrapping in the box of the world. Oh, the great thing about Jesus is not just that he is a savior, but he is a complete savior. Everything we lack and need is found in his fullness and given to us in his grace. Let us not spend our lives trying to rid ourselves of the divinely giving longing of our souls that only can be fulfilled in him. Amen. Let's bow our heads just for a time of of silence and meditation as we think about the word that is been preached this morning.
Lord, as we come before you this morning, we pray that something of the splendor and the completeness of our Savior will break in upon our souls and thrill us. The Lord, that this Advent season, that we would not only remember Christ's Advent and the events of his coming, but truly, O oh God, the, the work that you were doing uh, in the world then and that you continue to do in the world today. O oh God, may we delight in you as our complete Savior who has given all that we need. We just thank you, Lord, for this word and pray that you continue to allow it to work upon our hearts and our souls this day and in this coming week that we would think much of you. Lord, that these words would draw us to worship you and to praise you. We thank you and ask this in your name. Amen.